0: This is The Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses one object at a time. I'm Tamara Vishai.
1: Totes black milk of daybreak we drink it at evening we drink it at midday and morning we drink it at night we drink and we drink we shovel a grave in the air there you won't lie too cramped a man lives in the house he plays with his vipers he writes he writes when it grows dark to Deutschland your golden hair Marguerite. He writes it and steps out of doors, and the stars are all sparkling. He whistles his hounds to come close. He whistles his Jews into rows, has them shovel a grave in the ground. He orders us strike up and play for the dance. Black milk of daybreak, we drink you at night. We drink you at morning and midday. We drink you at evening. We drink and we drink. A man lives in the house, he plays with his vipers, he writes, he writes when it grows dark to Deutschland, your golden hair, Margarete, your ashen hair, Schulamit. We shovel a grave in the air, there you won't lie too cramped. He shouts, jab this earth deeper, you lot there, you others sing up and play. He grabs for the rod in his belt, he swings it, his eyes are blue. Jab your spades deeper, you lot there. You others, play on for the dancing. Black milk of daybreak, we drink you at night. We drink you at midday and morning. We drink you at evening. We drink and we drink. A man lives in the house. Your gold in his hair, Marguerite. Your ash in his hair, Shulamite. He plays with his vipers. He shouts, play death more sweetly. Death is a master from Deutschland. He shouts, scrape your strings darker. You'll rise then in smoke to the sky. You'll have a grave then in the clouds. There you won't lie too cramped. Black milk of daybreak, we drink you at night. We drink you at midday. Death is a master aus Deutschland. We drink you at evening and morning, we drink and we drink. This death is ein Meister aus Deutschland. His eye, it is blue. He shoots you with shot made of lead, shoots you level and true. A man lives in the house, your golden is hard, Margarete. He looses his hounds on us, grants us a grave in the air. He plays with his vipers and daydreams. Der Tod ist ein Meister. Aus deutschland. Der Teut ist ein Meister aus deutschland. Dein goldenes Goldenes Haar, Haar, Margarete. Dein Dein aschenes Aschenes Haar, Haar. Shulamit.
0: Episode 48. Anselm Kiefer's Margarete and Shulamit from 1981. This poem undoes me. A little more, I think, every time I hear it. It's called Todesfuge, Death Fugue, by the Romanian-German poet and Holocaust survivor Paul Ceylon. And it's a hard poem, hard to hear and even harder to read out loud. It takes practice. The phrases lurch and pitch, getting in front of your tongue like an uneven sidewalk, Its language deliberately unsettles and subverts, like that sickening oxymoron of black milk, repeated over and over. The active voice in this poem is relentless. We drink and we drink, like it's simultaneously quenching us and torturing us. And still, even as I hear this poem and I viscerally react to it, I find myself losing the thread a bit Maybe in the repetition, this dreamlike stream of consciousness. Or maybe in the way that language itself is treated like a palette of construction materials just waiting to be tripped over. Sometimes I feel a little embarrassed, like maybe I don't really get it. And so I listen again and again, like maybe this time I can break it down, analyze it properly. And then I find myself again and again pulled along by the march of these prisoners into my own head and into my own beating heart, which rhythmically mirrors the incessant drumbeat of language. We drink you at evening. We drink you at midday and morning. We drink you at night. We drink and we drink. And I think, too, about the enormous canvases created by Anselm Kiefer in direct response to this poem that are hung in the airy galleries of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, kitty-corner from one another, dwarfing the visitor and holding court. They, too, are hard to read. They, too, unsettle and subvert and make me question if I really understand what they're supposed to be communicating. I'll walk up close to them and, again, find myself unable to see the whole as I lose myself in the details of the uneven surfaces, these thick collages that are constructed and encrusted with layers and layers of paint and straw, clay and ash, and illuminated by flickers of burning white painted flames. These paintings are called Margareta and Shulamit, after the two women named in Todesfüge. The titles are explicitly scrawled in cursive across the rutted terrain of the canvases. And these are only two of the more than 30 artworks that Kiefer created in response to Ceylon's poem, which speaks to what a powerful impression it must have made on him. Kiefer was born practically into the rubble in a small German town in 1945, and Todesfuge would have been required reading for him and every other German schoolboy. Like the silent shadow of Nazism looming over his adolescence, it must have been inescapable. And I find that thinking about Kiefer and trying to imagine his story is actually a welcome distraction from my own convoluted and disjointed thoughts about this art. Given what we already know about the Holocaust, His story feels easier to process somehow, like I can imagine what his life was like, being born into that kind of national anguish, being born precast into the role of villain. I can imagine how much more difficult this already difficult poem would have felt like to read. But of course, I can't imagine it, not really. I can't presume to get inside Kiefer's head or the heads of any first-generation post-war German to understand what it must have felt like to be born into unprocessed, impossible shame. Just like I can't presume to understand what Ceylon went through as a Jew during the Holocaust, the lone survivor of his family experiencing the most staggering, impossible grief. All I can do is all I could ever do feel that active drumbeat in my own heart, pulling me along down the road of my own subjective response and recognize that it's paved a little differently from anyone else's. And that when you think about it, all of these responses accumulate and accumulate like layers of paint and straw and ash and lead upon a canvas until it's so heavy that the walls of the gallery need to be reinforced, which for Kiefer's work, they actually do. And it is this amassing of individual experience that tells the story of a collective trauma in the only real way it can be told, which is to say, incompletely. This is a beautiful idea, but it's also totally unsatisfying. How are we supposed to understand something as historically monumental as the Holocaust this way, by being told that it's incomplete, that we'll never understand. No one ever learned history like that. We're wired to want some objectivity, a story that we can hang our hats on, a well-defined moral universe with clear heroes to root for and villains to condemn. In other words, we don't want black milk. We want black and white. I, for one, had no reason not to expect that the Holocaust could be learned this way, like it was a story that I could process. And not only because I was a suburban Jewish kid in the 1990s and learned about the Holocaust when I was really young, well before I could reasonably have been expected to grasp the shades of gray of a traumatic historical event. But because in 1993, when I was nine years old, the movie Schindler's List came out. And almost instantaneously, it became our required schoolboy reading. And not just for Jewish kids, but for everyone. The Holocaust had only recently crossed a generational line where enough time had passed that we could see its well-defined historical arc. We could easily identify the heroes and the villains, which meant, of course, that it was time for history to come alive in the sweeping Hollywood epic, Ben-Hur style. Schindler's List was a cultural phenomenon, sweeping both box offices and the Academy Awards, leaving everyone in its wake equal parts gutted and exhilarated. We all hitched our emotional wagons to Oscar Schindler's hero's journey, from dashing war profiteer to a weeping savior who is so unselfish he can't even accept the role of savior. And we all sobbed together, and I did too. It's a really powerful film with an incredibly moving climax.
2: It's Hebrew from the Talmud. It says, whoever saves one life saves the world entire.
0: I could have got more. I don't know
2: if I just... I could have got more. Haska, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at them. If I made more money, (laughs) <laughs> if I just... There will be generations because of what you did. I
1: didn't do it. I could have come to a person. And I didn't. I did I, I not
0: <laughs> If I had only sacrificed a little more, I could have saved just one more life. It's also a beautiful idea. Maybe it lacks some nuance, maybe it's a little historically disingenuous to have been spoken by a German factory owner, and maybe the film's narrative signposts are glaring enough for the cheap seats in the back, but so be it. The payoff is worth it. It's so cathartic, so complete, So definitive. But here's the thing. It's definitive because it focuses on the part of the story that can be definitive. We're so taken with what Schindler's List is that we never stop to think about what Schindler's List isn't. This is not a film about the countless bureaucrats and factory owners who look the other way or the history of systemic European anti-Semitism that laid the groundwork for Nazism. And it's not about the aftermath, when Jews and Germans alike were left to rebuild their shattered cultures. Schindler's List is a film about the middle part, a world of clear right and wrong, presented in these broad, definitive strokes of black and white. And speaking of black and white, of course, this was a critical part of what makes Schindler's List iconic. The way the black and white monochrome captures the swirl of Liam Neeson's cigarette smoke, or the way the light streams through the ashes floating through the air like snow. Filming in black and white is a strikingly effective aesthetic choice. And it's also really manipulative. Spielberg was vocal that he wanted Schindler's List to resemble archival footage, to feel like we really were watching history come alive, with, he felt, all the authenticity and authority of a newsreel. And you can't say it didn't work. I mean, this does feel like a documentary. But it's not a documentary. It's a Hollywood movie. And any risk of conflating the two runs into some real problems about how the audience is going to react. Black and white archival footage feels like it's from another time, because it is a time that we can comfort ourselves by saying we've evolved past, like it couldn't happen here to us today. We've somehow earned a life in color. And by filming in black and white, and by aping this aesthetic, Spielberg is intentionally reinforcing this distance. And with it, though unintentionally, our complacency. And to this point, there's another element of archival footage that plays into this. Because when it's footage from the Holocaust, you already know that it's going to be scenes of unspeakable horror. The Holocaust is horror on a mass scale. You know what I mean. Its bodies piled like firewood. Its fingernail scratches on gas chamber walls. Its plainly impossible images to look at. And we respond to horror in curious ways. We recoil from it because images like these jolt our systems, sink our stomachs, and need to be pushed away with both hands. And of course plenty of people turn away and never look back. And then there are others who take some pleasure in that jolt. It can be thrilling to frighten yourself, to see how close to the edge you can tiptoe before you need to slam the book closed again and hide it in the back of the closet. And when you do this, little by little, your tolerance increases, your heartbeat normalizes, and critical distance builds a wall to protect you. Bodies become objects. Genocide becomes statistics. And these disturbing images ultimately lose their urgent grip on you. And so, in watching Schindler's List, three things become clear. First, black and white can make any story feel more distant. Second, no one was actually harmed in the making of this Hollywood film, which makes it easier to watch, of course. And third, the more horror we see, the more we can tolerate. And all of this separates us from the subject matter at hand. This is a beautiful, cathartic, well-told story that purports to tell us something definitive about the Holocaust, while giving us every opportunity to maintain our distance. And plenty of critics took Spielberg to task over Schindler's List. But for our purposes, some of the most pointed criticism came from a fellow filmmaker, the French documentarian Claude Landsman, who is exceptionally bothered by these two points we've just discussed, its visual tactics and its quote unquote completeness. And we'll take these criticisms in order. When it comes to treating visuals with care, Landsman knows from which he speaks. His own documentary, Shoah, which was released in 1986, and was created from over 11 years' worth of interviews of victims, perpetrators, and bystanders, was all but defined by its lack of archival footage. And it's all the more disturbing for it. Because over the course of a documentary that's nine hours long, all you see are haunted, middle-aged people in their living rooms, or revisiting now-empty fields, all struggling to come to terms with the aftermath. They're so human, so like us, and it's wrenching. We meet a dazed train driver who drove into the camps and watched people unloaded to their deaths and drank to forget what happened when he went to work each day. We meet a boy, now a soft-spoken man, who survived not because of any innate goodness, but for no good reason at all. The guard just happened to like his singing voice. These figures are interwoven with no-nonsense historians like this one.
2: This is the Fablan Anordnung, number 587, which is typical for special trains. It's just very regular traffic. And here we see that starting out in one ghetto, which obviously is being emptied, the train leaves on the 30th, off September 1942, 18 minutes after four o'clock, arrives there at 11.24 on the next morning. This is also a very long train, which may be the reason that it takes so slow. It's a 50 G, that's 50 freight cars filled with people. That's an exceptionally heavy transport. We may be talking here about 10,000 dead Jews on this one, Faplan Ornordner,
0: right here. There's nothing Hollywood about this. These interview subjects are not heroes or villains. And moreover, they are under no illusion that their stories are definitive. Instead, they're telling their singular experiences, just one of untold millions. Each experience might be complete in itself, or maybe it isn't, but each one is unequivocally a layer, one on top of another, telling a larger collective story that will never be complete. And this takes us back to where we started, and is also why Landsman found the quote unquote completeness of Schindler's list so frustrating. If 350 hours of tape taught him anything, it's that this story has no ending. And to this point, it's not an accident that one of the few recurring visual devices in Shoah is a train. It pops up repeatedly not just as a functional tool of bureaucratic genocide, as we've just heard, but also a metaphor for this lack of completeness. In fact, he ends Shoah with no ending, just an image of a train chugging along into perpetuity. And this replacement of a closed narrative arc like Schindler's List with an incomplete perpetual present like Shoah becomes a metaphor itself A metaphor for trauma. Trauma is, after all, ongoing. It speaks with an active voice. It makes the past present again and again. And think about what this means for historians, or for us even, just trying to make sense of the Holocaust. There are two consequences for using this lens of trauma — First, it obliterates the idea that the past is a story that can be told. And second, even if it could, trauma is a notoriously problematic storyteller because its fundamental paradox is that if you've never experienced something, you can't really imagine it. And if you have, then you can't really articulate it. This means that experience itself and anyone who's trying to respond to it with empathy, it becomes locked away, unshareable, uncommunicated, unseen. There's no language that can describe the indescribable, no images that can portray the unimaginable. This seems like an abstract idea, But it led to some very real questions about the future of art and poetry in the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust, especially art and poetry about the Holocaust. Numerous scholars questioned whether or not there was a place for it at all, most notably the Frankfurt School philosopher Theodor Adorno, who famously argued that, quote, to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. And though this was a statement that he never wanted or expected to be attached to him, and he tried repeatedly to walk it back, it spoke to a very real conundrum at the time. So many people felt that the trauma of the Holocaust, a trauma that was at once so collective and so individual, has destroyed art and poetry as we know it, scorched earth definitively. So if you're a poet or an artist, How do you make art? If you lived through it, how do you articulate your own experience? What new forms or new uses of language or new uses of materials can rise from the ashes? And this brings us back to our canvases at hand and the poem that they're based on. Paul Ceylon, a Jew who survived the war, and Anselm Kiefer, a German born into its aftermath, both share the enormous burden of being the son of trauma, tasked with speaking the unspeakable. Ceylon, because he was the only voice left, and Kiefer because he came into a world where he felt no one would talk about what had just happened. And both share the desire to give the Holocaust a voice with the understanding that treating history as the past will only act like a black and white newsreel, will only reinforce distance with visuals so graphic that they'll damage your eyes as badly as if you were looking directly into the sun. They understood that to create art after Auschwitz required both a sidelong entry point and an active voice, that you, as the reader and the viewer, need to be encouraged to be empathic, an active participant involved in the work of comprehension, while still giving you the opportunity to give yourself over to the materiality of the artwork. In other words, you have to feel that incessant drumbeat in your heart. But you also have to critically understand how it got there. Okay, so go back and listen again to Todesfuga. Do it now. I'll be waiting for you here around the 26 minute, 15 second mark. So this poem, it's the foundation of everything. So let's unpack it together. What might strike you first is this idea of a fugue, that there's an innate musicality to the poem's structure, the syncopation, the repetition the slow, plodding dirge of linguistic peaks and valleys. As I said at the top, it's an extraordinarily difficult poem to read aloud, because language isn't used purely for meaning, but for form, too. Like bricks constructing topography and texture starts and stops. But the meaning is there, too, and it's ruthless. We are introduced and reintroduced to the same characters, stanza after stanza, The prisoners, whose perspective we take, and who brutally occupy the active voice, we drink and we drink and we shovel our graves in the air in perpetuity. A perpetuity that is also driven by us, the readers, since it is our reciting of the poem that perpetuates the drumbeat, we drink and we drink. Meanwhile, the orders are issued by a man with blue eyes, a German, who is also defined by his verbs— He shoots us with shot made of lead. He whistles his hounds on us. He plays with his vipers. All of which make him unequivocally murderously frightening. And yet also, we're told repeatedly, he writes. Writing about what it means to be German, when death is your new master, when what you thought was your identity is destroyed under your feet. This detail about his writing acts as a rebellious bit of humanity a spark of connection in spite of ourselves, which is reinforced by the fact that he's also writing yearningly about two women. Your golden hair, Margareta, your ashen hair, Shulamit. These two lines are so simple, so tender, and also maybe a little lusty, a little shameful. And they're spoken not only by this blue-eyed man, but maybe also by us, the prisoners. And all of this confusion, who is really speaking, who is doing the yearning, whom we should actually be pitying, collapses the narrative enough to make us, the readers, suddenly take notice of these two women, who are both so specific and so mysterious. And in just a few lines, who have also just quietly shifted to become the epicenter of the poem. But they're actually not all that mysterious. They're literary references. Margareta is the heroine from Goethe's Faust, a warm, innocent, golden-haired idealization of femininity, a gentle icon of the Germany of Goethe that is, Germany at its romantic, intellectual 18th and early 19th century peak, before it was ruled by death. Schulamit, meanwhile, is King Solomon's beloved from the Song of Songs, beautiful, dark, soulful, the subject of erotic, reciprocated passion, the sexiest the Bible gets, really. And both women effectively become these metaphorical stand-ins for what it means to be German, or Jewish, the two cultures that the Holocaust was poised to destroy. They are the universal female objects of desire, so yearned for, nostalgic, shameful. And it also described so specifically by their hair, which in turn becomes fodder for even more metaphor. Golden hair becomes gleaming Bavarian wheat fields before the war. Ashen hair becomes a burnt offering after. And so we can understand why Margareta and Schulamit serve as such a layered and captivating foundation for Anselm Kiefer's massive, complicated canvases, which are themselves so layered, so thick and three-dimensional that they cross over into our realm, their heavy materiality weighing down the gallery walls, inviting our fingers to read them like braille. And this idea of reading them both the materials and the metaphors, gets to the heart of Kiefer's work. His art is defined by layers of texture and text, of the visible and the invisible, of the thing itself and how it's understood. And this is a lifelong preoccupation for him. He anecdotally describes how his early worldview was formed when he received a bicycle for his first communion and how the material reward felt so totally inadequate and disappointing for a little boy expecting, you know, spiritual transcendence. He was that kind of kid, and he's that kind of artist, one who explores all the myriad ways that what we can and cannot see intertwine. And what do I mean by this? Well, think about how we experience the physical world, but describe it with metaphors. Think about how inert objects can take on enormous spiritual significance because of how we use them. We have talismans, we have sentimental value, and juju. And think about how inert objects like steel and straw maybe aren't even that inert, because they possess the ability to change and evolve. But we'll come back to this. Overall, we're talking, of course, about some very abstract concepts. But for Kiefer, they're as real as concrete. Given that he was born in 1945, Kiefer has described his own biography as being the biography of Germany herself. That is, post-war Germany. And post-war Germany was defined by a very, very large elephant in the room that he believed no one was acknowledging at least not to his satisfaction. It felt to him that Germany was moving forward, away from the Holocaust, willfully wiping out the collective memory of its past, but still off-gassing this quiet shame into the air, a shame he was choking on. And this inspired both him and a group of writers and artists to make the invisible highly visible, Kiefer's first major art series that made him famous, or rather infamous when he was a taboo-smashing 24-year-old, was called Occupations. It consisted of photographs of Kiefer wearing, among other things, his father's Wehrmacht uniform and giving the Nazi salute in front of various man-made and natural monuments, all of course outside of Germany, since doing it there would get you arrested. He didn't consider these photographs self-portraits. Instead, he was the material, like paint. He wasn't focusing on himself, but rather just engaging with Germany's German-ness, attempting to both confront and explode its mythologies, its silence, its shame. Death is a master from Deutschland. In one photograph, he's shot from the back saluting the churning sea and mirroring a famous painting, Wanderer Above the Sea of Fog, by the celebrated German romantic landscape painter Caspar David Friedrich. Being shot from the back was a conventional romantic pose known as the Rügenfigur, or figure as seen from behind, and served to generate empathy with the thoughtful wanderer, which when conflated here with this Sigheil, Heil, feels not only shocking but sacrilegious which is exactly Kiefer's point. Nazism didn't just inflict indelible damage onto the world, but onto Germanness itself, appropriating, propagandizing, and deeply misusing its own mythology. Just think back to the ill-conceived Great German Art exhibition that we looked at in episode 9. And it wasn't just Germanness that Nazism tarnished. In another occupation photo, he stands in front of a French equestrian statue, calling out the Vichy government. And in another, he points out how Nazism tarnished nature itself as he salutes tree branches that had been planted in a line in a promenade, trees unnaturally whistled into rows, stiff as soldiers. In occupations, Kiefer exposes the myth that nations tell themselves to assume and maintain power, a myth they've even wholesale robbed from themselves. And his use of this physical action, the salute, is the perfect material to get at all this metaphor. What is more frightening than an echoing, electrified rally of saluting Nazis? What is more hollow and pathetic than one person saluting alone, after the fact? It's the same salute, whether it's fully empowered or completely emptied of its meaning. But of course, it's never totally emptied of meaning, which is why it could get you arrested in Germany, and which is why this photo series was, as you can imagine, deeply polarizing, and in the eyes of many ended Kiefer's career just as soon as it began. But those who took the time to consider the nuance beneath these subversive visuals saw a bit of genius. Here was a German who was willing to speak the unspoken, to acknowledge that both material things and myths, especially material things infused with myth, can both destroy a culture and be the first step in rebuilding it. And I know this is a serpentine back and forth, materials charged with meaning, meaning given material form. It's a milfoy of the tangible and the intangible, but bear with me as we look at one more element that really brings everything together, the actual materials that he's using. Kiefer delights in using materials that, in his mind, both highlight their own raw materiality and also throb with metaphysical life, those inert materials that maybe aren't so inert after all. Kiefer describes, quote, extracting the spirit that already lives within these materials as he takes what already exists, paint, clay, straw, and lead, and does whatever he can to activate their transformation from one thing into another. He dips metals into corrosive acid baths, He burns the straw into ash. He pounds crusty paint loose with sledgehammers and tears layers away with a palette knife. And he's particularly fascinated by lead, a material that is both so deadly in one context. He shoots you with shot made of lead. And also such a wonderful material for metaphor. He describes lead as strong enough to carry the weight of human history and is continually in flux as ideas themselves. And his awareness of lead's mutability came completely by accident. He was repairing aging pipes in an old house and was struck by the way that lead changed its colors over time, greens and coppers and golds, and how it continued to change even once it was fixed on the surface of a canvas. It was like this simple renovation project gave him the opportunity to put his finger on alchemy itself. And from there, this sense of alchemy and the constant renewal of materials made them, to him, feel endless, part of a perpetually incomplete cycle of death and rebirth like a phoenix, like traumatic experience. Materials are cyclical. Straw burns into ash. It releases energy along the way and provides them with a whole new medium to work with. His studio was full of piles of rubble, of discarded, hacked-off bits of painting detritus. Detritus that he describes as, quote, a painting in different states. And for this reason, his materials have no ending. He never throws anything away. Quote, people think of ruins as the end of something, he says. But for me, they're the beginning. When you have ruins, you can start again. It's always construction, demolition, reconstruction. All the stars will die and some others are born. We can't know who's responsible for that, and it's quite desperate. Because we have the intellect to want to know, but we cannot. End quote. And as you're probably realizing right now, Kiefer can be a difficult guy to keep up with. We've gone from rubble, to the cosmos, to humanity's intellectual desperation in one protracted thought. But then you realize, also, how relatable this is. Especially in extreme circumstances that we know we'll never be able to entirely understand. Think of a day in the life inside this pandemic going back and forth between balling up clean socks and beating back existential thoughts of everything we can't control, from top-down systems to microscopic droplets. It is quite desperate, all this not knowing. And this is why we turn to art, and especially poetry, which has permission to toggle so freely between the irrational and the rational, the micro and the macro, in just a single line. And it helps us understand Kiefer's exploration of, and even obsession with, the poetry of Paul Ceylon. Poetry was his lifeline, quote, like buoys in the sea, Kiefer wrote. I swim to them from one poem to the next. Without them, I am lost, end quote. Kiefer was clearly working something out with Ceylon's help riffing on a variety of motifs and references. Again, Margareta and Shulamit are only the best known of a much larger series. And in doing so, creating these whole textured universes as a means of understanding both what the Holocaust meant to Paul Ceylon in Ceylon's moment, and subsequently, what the Holocaust means to him in his moment. So let us now finally explore these paintings. We'll start with Margareta, which is a bluish gray painted surface covered with thick stalks of straw that grow up from the bottom. Each shoot capped with a flame that is painted so brilliantly you almost feel the heat singe your eyes. The way the flames sit is reminiscent of a field after a fire with the darkened burned bits of ash on the ground and the remaining flames peppering what's still standing. And it's also reminiscent of a menorah, the iconic candelabra that's used by Jews at Hanukkah, and a metaphor, a hopeful symbol of what remains after destruction. There's a condensed sense on this canvas of before and after. Your golden hair, Margareta, yearning for something that's gone that existed before, and what's left over, waiting to be rebuilt. It's beautiful and it's calm, it's warm and it's sad. It's a canvas that invites you to both grieve and yearn, simultaneously acknowledging loss and also maybe flickering with hope. But Shulamit takes you somewhere else, somewhere much bleaker, the anxiety and austerity of this canvas is much more visually representative of what we consider to be typical Holocaust imagery, both in the fact that the space itself mirrors the massive fascist design for the funeral hall for the great German soldiers by the architect Wilhelm Kreis, who is a student of the infamous Nazi architect Albert Speer, and in the fact that this cavernous, windowless space that we enter from an exaggeratedly low perspective, feels like a giant crematorium. The bricks appear blackened with fire and soot, your ashen hair, Shulamit. The architectural plans for glorious fascist architecture have become, in effect, a haunting memorial to its victims. It also feels like something that remains, There's no life left, no hope, only emptiness, created from these layers and layers of residue, paint, and actual ash. And though you could argue that there's still a trace of light, still a flicker of tiny flames that dance atop what appears to be a funeral pyre, they're placed so deeply in the center of this overwhelming space that approaching this blackness would swallow you whole. So it's pretty clear that once you know what you're looking at, you can recognize Kiefer's bit of genius in these canvases. But this then begs the question, how many people actually know what they're looking at? Finding a good translation of Todesfüge, and then hearing it read aloud, and then doing some background research on Paul Ceylon and then digging into the literary and biblical references of these two women, and then reading a quick bio of Anselm Kiefer's exploration of post-World War II Germanness, is a lot to ask of your viewer. I'd even argue that it's too much to ask. So can you appreciate these canvases without all these layers of text? Personally, I'd argue that you can. Kiefer knows that viewers are going to miss references, and even takes pleasure in creating deliberately enigmatic work, hoping that his audience will, quote, linger over it, try and fathom it out. After all, he argues, it's still an active interaction. He's providing a richly layered platform upon which to project your own emotions. And even if you've never heard of Todesfüge, you can't deny that you're confronted with some truly enthralling works of art that invite you to get lost in the vastness, the void, the materials, the frenetic energy, the meditative stillness. These canvases are like a kitchen sink, a magazine horoscope. You can always find something to fasten your eye onto, to relate to. There's enough that's representational to conjure up emotions and experience of your own. And there's enough that's abstract to give yourself over to those feelings. No matter where you are, these canvases catch you in the moment. And isn't this the aim? To be caught in our moment? Isn't that how we generate real empathy with something that we haven't experienced? This is what makes these objects present, not a story of the past. Kiefer even describes his work as, quote, a theater for memory, a place where the past is always live on stage, always an ongoing performance. And of course, it's not his own memory that he's talking about, but ours. In the same way that our reciting of Todesfuga keeps the action moving forward, Our experiencing of these paintings brings them into our space, activates them with our own emotional response. History becomes clay, he says, molded by different hands and taking on the subtle relief of each individual's fingerprints. And this individual response is itself mutable, unfixed, oxidizing like lead, perpetually incomplete. Quote, art is longing, Kiefer writes, inadvertently crossing paths with Cloud Lansman's train. Quote, you never arrive, he says, but you keep going in the hope that you will, end quote. And this maybe is the closest that we can come to understanding. And by understanding that we'll never entirely understand. No more than Paul Ceylon did at the end of a life that he took by his own hand. No more than Kiefer did after 30 canvases. And it's not satisfying. In fact, it's quite desperate. We'll never arrive. But we keep going in the hope that we will. It's simply how the heart of trauma beats. But like a heart, it can't actually keep beating on its own forever, at least not inside of its original body. Metaphors require active interaction. They require someone to know the references. And without someone reading and interpreting them, even just by projecting their own emotions onto them, it will die on the wall if we're not the ones continually pumping life into it. Art, and especially art like this, is so dependent on its beholders. And in this way, art flirts with death all the time. After all, if Kiefer's work is meant to be a theater of memory, our memory, then we need to account for the fact that people forget, that memories fade as time and generations pass. And this changes the very substance of the art. Kiefer's work is not going to read the same way to a Holocaust survivor as it does to me as it will to my children, as history fades into the past. To be honest, it doesn't even read the same way to Kiefer today as it did in the 1980s, when he was so consumed by Ceylon's poetry. When he talks about Margareta and Shulamit in more recent interviews, you can sense his own distance from them, how they function as pillars from another time in his career. He uses the same somewhat rehearsed talking points— Clearly, both he and his art have moved on. Which is entirely their prerogative. It's exhausting to stay perpetually present, perpetually vigilant and empathic. It's active work. And there's no shame in admitting that it's so much easier to be told a good story that we can process. And this isn't just because we're lazy or too historically removed, or want to move on with our art careers. It's human nature. This desire to retreat into passive, black and white moral clarity is incredibly strong. Growing up, my family had a dear friend named Alona, who survived plaschau concentration camp and once remarked, with the same subversive bravery as an occupations photograph, that every now and then, she missed the camps. There was something reassuring about such stark moral clarity, such a clear black and white demarcation between good and evil that just doesn't exist in the real world. And when it's put that way, we realize that living in the real world, exhausting though it may be, is an enormous privilege. We're so fortunate to live in shades of gray that is, in color. And to his credit, even Steven Spielberg acknowledges this in the colorized coda to Schindler's List, where survivors and actors memorialized Schindler hand in hand. And what's more, we're privileged to live surrounded by the tactile materials of daily life that become all the more evident after spending time with Kiefer's work. And with them, their layers of meaning and memory, metaphor and experience. And living this way, being so open to what the rubble can tell us, means that we need to finally let go of the black and white expectation that history, comprised as it is of human experience, is knowable. It isn't. And yes, it makes us feel quite desperate. Because when people die from the Holocaust, from a pandemic, in the routine every day, their experience dies with them. And this is a desperate loss. So how else can we really respond than to try to accept the unknowable and to keep this drumbeat active? To find satisfaction not in distance, but by fully submerging ourselves in this textured world and its many mutable prismatic shades, green and coppery and golden. And to embrace the incompletion that allows for us to perpetually construct our rebirth like a phoenix from the ashes. Special thanks to Bernard of Ishai and Sidra dekova rahi whom you heard reading Todes Fuga at the top over an original recording of Paul Ceylon, and to Aaron Fleming and Erica Gangzi at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art for their support with this episode, which is dedicated, with so much love, to the memories of Ilona Carmel and Professor Jacques Kornberg. For more information, past episodes, and all of the images, Go to thelonelypalette.com, and you can follow us on Twitter, at Lonely Palette, and on Instagram, where I regularly post images from the episode and various art historical tidbits, at The Lonely Palette. And like us on Facebook, and please, if you have the means during this tough time, and if the show has brought you any kind of comfort, support an independent podcast and head over to our Patreon page to become a patron at patreon.com slash lonelypalette. The Lonely Palette is a proud founding member of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, and you can find lots of great idea-driven podcasts just like this at hubspokeaudio.org.
2: Hub & Spoke Audio Collective